when sin had crept into Jerusalem after the hard work of reform and rebuilding, Nehemiah didn't delay in removing the problem. Today on Turning Point, Dr. David Jeremiah says you should follow the same example when dealing with the enemy. The longer you wait, the greater the danger. Here's David to introduce the powerful conclusion of his message, Doing Away with Compromise. Well, thank you for joining us today for the Friday edition of Turning Point. It's good to be with you. It's good to have had you along for this study from Nehemiah, The Ten Steps to Spiritual Renewal. And uh, we're going to finish that up on Monday. And uh, I hope that you'll be with us right up to the very end. Let me tell you, there's a study guide that memorializes all that we've been talking about, along with a series of CDs that captures every word that I've said on these uh, network uh, teaching programs. And you can get that from Turning Point. You can order it. uh, You can purchase it and have it sent to your own home. You can get a copy of our special resource, though, by sending a gift of any size to Turning Point in these final days of the month of January. This month's resource is O.S. Hawkins' latest code book, The Prayer Code, 40 Scripture Prayers Every Believer Should Pray. My friend O.S. Hawkins has given us some great treasures in his code books, and this may be one of the best. He's addressed a problem that every Christian admits to but doesn't really know what to do about. We know we should pray. We know we should pray more, and we know we should pray better. I think O.S. Hawkins has gone about the task of helping us do all three of those things. I would love for you to have this book because I know if you take it seriously, it will make a difference in your life. So when you send your gift this month, ask for your copy of The Prayer Code by O.S. Hawkins. It will come to you as soon as we get your request, and you will begin to use it to enhance your own walk with the Lord as you renew your fellowship with Him. Well, we're about to do the second part of doing away with compromise. Let's not wait any longer. This is Nehemiah 13, and this is where we ended up last time. Notice verse 31 of chapter 10. That if the peoples of the land bring wares or any grain to sell on the Sabbath day, we would not buy it from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day, and that we would forego the seventh year's produce and the exaction of every debt. They had signed their names to the fact they would not let happen what was happening. Now you say, does that mean we shouldn't buy and sell on Sunday? No, Sunday isn't the Sabbath. Sabbath means Saturday. Sabbath is seven. Sunday is the first day of the week. It is interesting that all of the Old Testament law is repeated in the New Testament, all of the Ten Commandments with the exception of the commandment concerning the Sabbath day. Now, that doesn't mean we should just treat Sunday without any regard. I think it is built within the economy of the universe that there's one day out of seven where we ought to kick back a little bit and rest. And one of the reasons we got so many people tripping out instead of kicking back is because they never take any time to rest and relax. There's just a principle built into our culture, to our whole economy, that there needs to be some time away from what we normally do. I'm not here to reinstitute the Sabbath laws on Sunday. I think it'd be all right if we went back to the blue laws. It'd be fine with me. But we ought to be careful that we don't try to take all the Sabbath laws and reinstitute them into Sunday. And some folks have forgotten about that, and they've tried to do it. But in the Old Testament, it was not an option. In the Old Testament, the Sabbath belonged to the Lord, and Jews were under the law to observe it, and there were strict regulations concerning the Sabbath which must not be violated. And the interesting thing about this, as I study this passage, is these Jews had just come out of 70 years of captivity 
which was the result of having violated the year of Jubilee for 490 years. In other words, in the Old Testament economy, God had not only set up one out of every seven days is to be given back to the Lord, but one out of every seven years was to be given back to the Lord. And for 490 years, the Jews violated the Sabbath year or the year of Jubilee. And so God said, all right, if you won't give it to me as I ask for it, I'm going to take it from you. And God took them to Babylon and took 70 years out of their lives, which is 490 years worth of Sabbaths. And for 70 years, they've been gone. Now they're just back. They haven't been back long enough, hardly even pass from one generation to the next. And the first thing they do is to start violating the very thing that caused them to be in captivity in the first place. Boy, it's hard for me to understand that, except it's just like us. It's just like us. We're hard-headed, aren't we? We never do finally learn anything. We know in our own hearts that God blesses us when we give, that God blesses us when we honor him. And yet the first time we have any stress in our family or in our financial dealings, the first thing we do is we put God over here on the shelf for a while while we go on with business and we wonder why God doesn't bless us. So I'm going to tell you something. Nehemiah, I can use this word if it's all right, he was ticked. I mean, he is really upset. I mean, he comes back and finds this reprobate living in the temple. He gets that taken care of. Next thing he knows, these people are doing other crazy things. He has to deal with that. Now he discovers they have violated the Sabbath after they've all signed a covenant that they're not going to do it. Now, I want you to see what he does. He says, they're actually men from another culture who have come and set up their wares in Jerusalem. The men of Tyre, according to verse 16, had moved into Jerusalem, set up their own business in the city, and the leaders of Jerusalem were allowing the men of Tyre to have their own little swap meet right downtown Jerusalem. So Nehemiah faces this one. I'm going to tell you something. He gets after it. I want you to notice what happened. Verse 17, then I contended with the nobles of Judah, and I said to them, What evil thing is this that you do by which you profane the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers do thus, and did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? In other words, don't you remember how we got in the mess we've been in? We did this before, and God judged us for it. Yet you bring added wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. Now watch carefully. So it was at the gates of Jerusalem, as it began to be dark before the Sabbath, that I commanded the gates to be shut. And I charged that they must not be open till after the Sabbath. Then I posted some of my servants at the gates so that no burdens would be brought in on the Sabbath day. Now the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside of Jerusalem once or twice. They said, well, we can't get in. We'll set up our shop outdoors. Now watch this. So I warned them and I said to them, why do you spend the night around the wall? If you do this again, I will lay hands on you. And he's not talking about ordination. From that time on, they came no more on the Sabbath. Don't you love this guy? You know, you say, is it right for him to have this holy zeal? It is absolutely right because he is zealous for the holiness of God. It's right for him to throw Tobiah out because he's God's enemy. He absolutely ought to do that. It's right for him to bring the priests back in and get them back to work and tell the people to start supporting them because that's what God's word says. And it's right for him to throw all these merchants out of the city and to lock the gates so nobody can get in and out on Saturday. I mean, you talk about locked in, locked in to do the word of God. It's like coming to church on Sunday morning. Some of you don't come back on Sunday night. I just lock the doors. You can't go home all day. We'll serve lunch and we'll have church on Sunday night and we'll flat get you here one way or the other. That's what Nehemiah did. He spoke to the leaders, he shut the gates, and he scared the merchants to death. 
And they said after they talked to Nehemiah and saw his wrath, he said, you come out here one more time and I'm coming out, I'm going to punch your lights out. That's what I'm going to do. And they're gone. But he's got still one more problem. The last problem is he noticed they had left off the sanctity of their vows. As you come to the end of this chapter, you discover that they had decided that it was all right to intermarry, and they had started to marry wives from the culture that was around them. This begins at verse 23. In those days I saw also Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod and could not speak the language of Judah, but spoke according to the language of one or other of the people. Now, the children of Israel, once again, had promised in writing, go back with me, let's see what they said, chapter 10, verse 30. Notice again what they had covenanted to do after they got reformed and they had revival and they got everything straightened out. Chapter 10, verse 30. We promised that we would not give our daughters as wives to the peoples of the land, nor take their daughters for our sons. That's what they'd committed to do. Twelve years later, they're intermarrying like crazy. They got wives from Ashdod. They got wives from Moab. They got wives from Ammon. Nehemiah said it was such a sad perspective because half of the kids that belonged to these Jewish parents couldn't even speak Hebrew. Some of them spoke the language of Ashdod. Some of them spoke the language of Moab. They couldn't even speak the native tongue of the Jews. And God had commanded that they maintain their purity. Remember, these are God's chosen people, and out of the purity of the Jewish line was to come the Redeemer. They were God's chosen ones. And without any leadership to keep them from going astray, with Nehemiah gone and with his lieutenants watching things, what had happened is they had strayed back into intermarriage. They found the beautiful women around them attractive, and they started to marry. And before they know it, they had broken down the purity of the people of God. The incredible phenomenon in Israel frustrated Nehemiah more than all of their other sins. His actions were probably unprecedented in his leadership in Israel. He was so disturbed and angry that he did something I have never read anybody else doing quite like this. Verse 25. So I contended with them and I cursed them. Now he didn't call them swear names. The word curse is he pronounced God's judgment on them. He cursed them according to what God had said concerning their sin. Now watch this. And I struck some of them and pulled out their hair. <laughs> now, I mean, this guy is one feisty leader. Some commentators say that what he did was he went up and he struck them and pulled their beard out. That was one of the things they did when they were angry with one another. That's why I'm clean shaven. <laughs> I don't want to have anybody tempted. But he was so angry that he went up and he struck them and he pulled out their beard or pulled out their hair. Notice. And I made them swear by God, saying, You will not give your daughters as wives to their sons, nor take their daughters for your sons or yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin by these things? Yet among many nations there was no king like him who was beloved of his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, pagan women caused even him to sin. Do you see that? God is not telling them not to marry these women because he doesn't want them to enjoy the finer things of life. He doesn't want them to marry into the pagan cultures because he knows when they do, they will corrupt him. And he uses as an illustration, here was Solomon, God's chosen one, the man who built the temple, the number one son of David, the Shalom, the king of peace. He was most loved of God, and yet he married foreign wives, and those wives corrupted even Solomon. So what makes you think you're going to get by? Obviously, they had rationalized in their mind that it was all right to marry an unsaved woman. 
as many do today. The Bible still says, Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And yet I hear all the time, in fact, I had a conversation this week in another part of this country with a young man who is marrying an unsaved girl, and he's got it all rationalized in his mind as to how he's prayed about it and God has given him peace. I want to tell you something. God never gives his children peace to do that which violates his word. You can call on God all you want to, but don't blame God for your sinful behavior. If you're violating the word of God, it's because you're violating the word of God. Don't implicate God in it. That just makes it worse. If you want to go marry somebody that's not saved and you're going to turn your back on what God has said in his word, you go do it. But don't tell anybody God told you you can do it because his book says don't do it. Well, these people had just intermarried with the Ashdodites and the Ammonites and the Moabites. And, and what a mess. Verse 27, should we then hear of your doing all this great evil, transgressing against our God by marrying pagan women? And watch this. And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was a son-in-law of Sanballat. Now, let me just put that together for you, man. You remember Eliashib? Who was that? He was the guy who brought Tobiah in and gave him an apartment in the temple. Watch this now. Read it carefully. And one of his sons, Jehoiada, was a son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. Now, who was Sanballat? He was one of the other triumvirate enemies that had plagued Nehemiah all the time he was building the wall. Now, please understand what has happened. Tobiah has involved himself in an alliance with Eliashib, and Eliashib's son has now married the daughter of Sanballat the Horonite, so he has married into the family of the number one enemy of Israel who had fought against Nehemiah. Can you imagine this? Is it any wonder that Nehemiah was exercised in his spirit? Here was Tobiah who had tried to destroy him, who had slandered him all over the place and tried to keep the wall from being built. He's living in the temple. And Sanballat's daughter is married to the son of the priest. Notice verse 28. One of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was a son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. Therefore, I drove him from me. I can see Nehemiah chasing him down the street, man. You get out of here. You're not staying here. You're gone, buddy. Get out. I don't know what happened, but I know he got him out. And once again, he prays, remember me, O God, <laughs> because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleanse them of everything pagan, and I sign duties to the priests and the Levites also to his service and to bringing the wood offering and the first fruits at appointed times. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. You sense that Nehemiah is doing this in great courage and great strength, but with a broken heart. And as he does it, he just keeps crying out, Oh God, don't forget me. I'm your man. I'm doing your work, but don't forget me, God. If you forget to remember me, I'm all alone by myself standing for righteousness. Now, this passage teaches me two things that I want to just leave with you as we close. First of all, it teaches me that we must be aware of the craftiness of the enemy. He seeks to infiltrate and to clutter up our lives, doesn't he? He likes to come in in the areas where God belongs and get all of God's stuff moved out so he can move his furniture in. In the north of Ireland, there's a little town called Balamina. It's a very Protestant town, and the Christian people there are very fond of holding cottage prayer meetings. On one occasion, a lady planned a series of three cottage meetings to be held in her home weekly. 
Her next-door neighbor happened to be one of the few Roman Catholics who lived in the town, and she had been witnessing to her. In fact, she had invited that young woman to come to the meeting. She made an excuse and said she couldn't come, but the following morning she was interested to find out what had happened at the college prayer meeting. And so the hostess said, oh, we had a wonderful time. We had 35 people in my little home, and it was full. Won't you come next week? Well, the next week the meeting was held again, and the following morning a similar conversation took place. Did you have a good time last night, said the young Catholic woman. Oh, yes, a very good time. In fact, even better than last week. We had 51 people in my cottage, and my little cottage was full. There will be one more meeting next week. Would you come? Well, the third meeting came and went, and the following day the same question was asked across the garden wall because the woman didn't attend. She said, did you have a good meeting last night? Oh, she said, wonderful. In fact, the very best yet. We had 62 people in my little cottage, and it was absolutely full. And the Catholic woman looked at her and she said, no, wait a minute, this is not possible. You began your meeting with 35 people and you said your house was full. The next week it was 51 and the last night it was 62. It can't be done. If your house was full with 35, how could you have 62? Oh, she said, it's very simple. Our little house was full when we had 35 in it, but you see, last night we just put all the furniture out on the lawn and made room for 62. What a parable that is. How much room is there in your life for the Holy Spirit? Is the whole trouble with Tobiah and his furniture to clutter up the place the trouble in your life? Have you let so much stuff grow up in your heart and in your life that there's no longer any room for God, no longer any room for him to do his work? Or are you constantly taking stuff out to make more room for God? Are you constantly taking some of the things that you've gotten used to and kind of putting them out in the front lawn because you want God to be comfortable in your life? Satan's strategy is to infiltrate the apartment of your heart with his stuff until there's no room left for the things of God. How we ought to be aware of the craftiness of the enemy. And then secondly, we must be aggressive in confronting the enemy. Satan is very actively after us, and he takes some aggressive resistance. I've gone back through this passage, and we don't have time to point it out, but I've noticed how many action verbs there are with regard to Nehemiah's activity. Verses 11, 17, and 25, you'll see the word he contended, which is very aggressive. Verse 9 and 19 is the word he commanded. Verses 15 and 21 is the word he testified. And then there are even more intensive verbs. Nehemiah cast forth. Verse 8, when he threw the furniture out. He cursed, he smote, he plucked. Verse 25. He attacked boldly and frontally, and there was no doubt in his mind his action was purposeful. He dealt with problems as soon as they came to his attention. He did it aggressively. Over the years of ministry, as I review my life, I'm sure that in the early years I was a bit maybe aggressive when I shouldn't have been. But I think the tendency as we grow older in the ministry is to become less aggressive than we should be. Just kind of settle in, and when problems come, just sort of think, well, maybe they'll go away. Maybe if I just sort of hang loose, this thing will float away. But I've learned a long time ago that problems don't go away. If we don't advance on them, they advance on us. And while we need to be careful that we have a godly spirit and that we have a broken heart about things that are wrong, we can never stand still when we see inroads being made to the unity of God's people and the purpose of God's church. 
We must adopt a similar approach as did Nehemiah. We must be aggressive in confronting the enemy. Dr. Swindoll, in his book on Nehemiah, has a wonderful story, and I want to close with this story. He says, The life of Ludwig von Beethoven, although one of great ecstasy, was also checkered with sporadic agony. By the time he was five years old, Beethoven was playing the violin under the tutelage of his father, also an accomplished musician. By the time he was 13, Beethoven was a concert organist. In his 20s, he was already studying under the very watchful eyes of Haydn and Mozart. In fact, Mozart spoke prophetic words when he declared that Beethoven would give the world something worth listening to by the time his life ended. As Beethoven began to develop his skills, he became a prolific composer. During his lifetime, he wrote nine majestic symphonies and five concertos for piano, not to mention numerous pieces of chamber music. Ludwig van Beethoven also wrote sonatas and pieces for violin and piano, and he has thrilled us with the masterful works of unique harmony that broke with the traditions of his times. There's no question about it. The man was a genius. Beethoven was not, however, a stranger to difficulties. During his 20s, he began to lose his hearing. His fingers became thick, he said on one occasion. He couldn't feel the music as he once had. His hearing problem haunted him in the middle years of his life, but he kept it a well-guarded secret. When he reached his 50s, he had come to the place where he could no longer hear at all. And one day, in absolute frustration, he was seen in his house on his knees, banging his fists on the floor and saying, in essence, I am going to take life by the throat. I will not quit. And those who knew him said that even though he was deaf, yet he was still a magnificent musician. And even though he could not hear the music that he composed because of his determination not to give in, he was able to remain far more productive than he otherwise would have been. He took life by the throat. It seems to me when it comes to the inroads of Satan in our lives, in our ministries, we need to be that aggressive. Nehemiah took life by the throat. When problems arose, he went after them and dealt with them. And that's why as we close the book, at least for a period of time, sin has been taken from the people. The temple is clean. The enemy is gone, and God's people are going forward in unity to serve him. What a marvelous ending to our discussion. And what a blessing it has been to follow Nehemiah and Ezra as they have led the people through this particular time in Jewish history. We're going to take some time off for the weekend. Uh, we'll be back on Monday with one final lesson from Nehemiah, and then as always, we will spend a few uh, broadcasts at the end of this month on the subjects of stewardship before we get into our next series, which is Courage to Conquer. I'm so glad that you are part of Turning Point. I hope that you are also part of a local church and that you will get to that church this weekend, be a source of encouragement and support for your pastor. Don't be a part of the problems that are there because all churches have them. Be a part of the solution. Make a difference. Lift up the hearts of people. There are a lot of discouraged people as we, as we enter into this particular season of life. COVID has 
wreaked havoc with a lot of families and a lot of individuals. God has called you to be a light. I hope you'll do that. Be a part of your church and be an encouragement. We're on television all over the country on the weekends. Sometimes uh, we end up being on television when you should be in church. So be sure to DVR the program and go to church. That's the priority there. And uh, we'll certainly um, be in our church doing what we do and looking forward to the Monday edition of Turning Point and hope you'll come back and be with us. And in the meantime, one last time, don't forget our resource for the month, the prayer code by O.S. Hawkins. Ask for it when you send your gift to Turning Point today. From all of us here at Turning Point, have a wonderful weekend. We'll see you on Monday. Our message today originated from Shadow Mountain Community Church and senior pastor, Dr. David Jeremiah. If Turning Point is a blessing in your life, tell us about it by writing to Turning Point for God of Canada, P.O. Box 18098, Delta, B.C., V4L2M4. Visiting our website at davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. That's davidjeremiah.ca slash radio or calling 800-946-4300. Ask for your copy of O.S. Hawkins' latest book, The Prayer Code, 40 Scripture Prayers Every Believer Should Pray. It's yours for a gift of any amount. You can also download the free Turning Point mobile app for your favorite smart devices, or search in your app store for the keywords Turning Point Ministries, and instantly access our content. Visit davidjeremiah.ca slash radio for details. This is David Michael Jeremiah. Join us Monday as we conclude 10 Steps to Spiritual Renewal here on Turning Point with Dr. David Jeremiah. Turning Point's new 365-day devotional, Every Day with Jesus, is available now. Filled with inspirational readings from Dr. David Jeremiah and paired with Scripture, it will encourage you each day in your walk with God. This popular resource is yours with a gift of any amount in support of this program. And when you give a generous gift of $120 or more, you'll receive four copies so you can share them with others. Learn more at davidjeremiah.ca. That's davidjeremiah.ca. Have you ever wondered what your legacy will be? The Jeremiah Legacy Society from Turning Point was created for friends of the ministry who feel called to partner with Dr. David Jeremiah to deliver the unchanging Word of God to future generations. We can ensure that the impact we have reaches beyond our days here on earth. Visit our website at davidjeremiahgift.org to learn more about how you can be a part of the Jeremiah Legacy Society. Turning Point presents the Jeremiah Study Bible. Jumpstart your Bible study with more than 8,000 study notes from Dr. Jeremiah to help you discover what the Bible says, what it means, and what it means for you. Available in the New King James and New International versions in standard or large print, as well as the English Standard Version in standard print. For more details or to order your copy, go to davidjeremiah.ca slash jsb. Native Americans are credited with the familiar proverb that says, never criticize a person until you have walked a mile in his moccasins. That statement reminds me of how quickly we make judgments, not necessarily negative or critical ones, just judgments without knowing all the facts. Sometimes we have to make judgments, especially on black and white moral issues 
where the Bible speaks clearly. But Jesus warned against being too quick to judge in the gray areas of life. In those cases, we would be wiser to withhold our judgment, to think the best of a person until we know the whole story. This is David Jeremiah encouraging you to get on the road to new life. Discover God's reasons to think the best on Route 66. Route 66, driving the word home. Log on to Route66life.com. Start your journey home today.